In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. My guest today on In Discussion in a three-part series, Dr. Brian O'Leary, a scientist philosopher with 50 years of experience in academic research, teaching, and government service in frontier science and energy policy. He was a NASA scientist astronaut during the Apollo program, the first to be selected for a planned Mars mission, and participated in unmanned planetary missions as an Ivy League professor. Over the past four decades, Dr. O'Leary has been an international author, speaker, peace activist, founder of nonprofits, an advisor to progressive U.S. Congress members, and presidential candidates. His latest book, The Energy Solution Revolution, describes the enormous potential of breakthrough clean energy technologies, their suppression, and their logical necessity for our survival. Zero-point vacuum energy, cold fusion, and advanced hydrogen and water chemistry could provide us all an abundant future for all of humanity. In 2004, he and his wife, the artist Meredith Miller, moved to the Andes in Ecuador, where they co-created Montesunas, an eco-retreat and educational center dedicated to creativity and the rights of nature. Dr. Brian O'Leary. Brian O'Leary, welcome back to In Discussion again. This is our second program in the series. Thank you, David, and I'm glad to be back. We had a uh, wonderful conversation in the first program regarding the general issues and also talking about your own story over the years. The program today I would like to focus on your publication, The Energy Solution Revolution. And it does have an energy that follows on from the first program. Could you tell me, in a summary, before we move into the details of this book, what it was that brought you to writing this, what the catalyst was? Well, as I mentioned in the last program, for the last 30 to 40 years, I've made it a a point of it to... uh, step outside of the box of traditional Western science, for which I was so so well-trained at various universities. And I decided to go into uh, a new science of consciousness, uh, uh, the science that addresses many, many questions that are vexing to the standard materialistic scientist. And so I looked at, at various issues, kind of some or one at a time, either by my direct experience or through uh, scientific research or going to the laboratories of leading researchers in some of these areas. And I I kind of avoided the the question of energy, even though I realized at some very deep level that if I'm to accept a new science of consciousness of 
the fact that there is a higher dimensional reality impinging on our familiar dimensions and that we, we can transcend time and space. The energy question was one that I've kind of had been putting aside during my years of metaphysical exploration during the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, so the energy question didn't really come up for me in a big way until the 1990s, and it led to my current book, The Energy Solution Revolution. It was preceded by a number of books, including one called Miracle in the Void, which also addressed the question of free energy and uh, what its impact on the culture would be. But what really triggered it was my visit, my international travels during the early 90s to many of the best and brightest inventors and researchers, where I became convinced experimentally that we are dealing with a, a concept of science that, that's been buried for a very long time, even though it has been known to many people throughout the ages, whether it was the ancient Vedas or all through the years, that indeed there is a potential energy field that can be tapped. It's enormous. It can produce electricity. It can produce information. And it can also create healing. And all of these applications of a general principle that is now just beginning to be understood by science is extraordinary, really, by our traditional materialistic Western standards. And no wonder there's been so much resistance. And that, of course, uh, has been addressed mostly in my new book, is the question of, well, if these concepts um, appear to be real in the laboratory, why don't we simply uh, research and develop them, team up and do it uh, Apollo style, and let's have a a, uh, a free or clean energy economy. Having been convinced, in other words, that experimentally these concepts appear to work very well and it appears to be a very clean form of electricity generation and also the use of, of very cheap fuels such as water, why don't we just go ahead and do it? And, and it was then that I learned about all of the suppression that's been going on through the years. My book is really an appeal to those of us that, that should know better <laughs> uh, to, that it's worth investigating. We don't even have to know it's commercially available at this particular time. It's more something to be researched, uh, something to be checked out because it could solve the energy crisis w once and for all. Uh, no more climate change, no more global warming, no more rampant pollution that can come from power plants and and uh, the the poor use of our fuels and and so forth and so on. So in, in a way, uh, now that these issues like climate change are coming to a head, I feel like a voice in the wilderness sometimes because uh, some people who would otherwise you would think would support these these ideas, people in the environmental movement people uh, that are good scientists and uh, political progressives, that they would embrace warmly this possibility, but they haven't. It's a very uh, unusual situation, and one that reflects one of my favorite quotes is from the late English philosopher Bertrand Russell, when he one time said, the resistance to a new idea increases as the square of its importance.
And if we're talking about supplanting a multi-trillion dollar fossil fuel and uh, nuclear enterprise, then we're talking about a huge perspective change and a huge amount of resistance as well. I'm very solution-led, as I'm sure that we all are. And in reading your book, it certainly talks very much to this suppression. You quote in there very eloquently the conversations that traveled between Twain and a uh, scientist engineer a hundred years ago. And we're very aware that this suppression has been around for hundreds of years, if not thousands. The big question, I think, which direction do we go in uh, knowing that this suppression is there? And, of course, there are many conspiracy theorists today who who talk about these large corporations. Uh, you talk about the social elite, the 400, uh, in your book. The big question is, in getting this message across to the scientific community, also to the political arena, and also to these foundations who potentially have the funding to take this new science forward, should we be looking back three or four thousand years, uh, back to the ancient civilizations, who it is very apparent, uh, whether you look at the uh, Dogen uh, civilization or the Egyptian civilization, uh, all with strong ties, who clearly had technology that was as impressive as we have today, if not more so. In your mind, which direction should we go now with people in the public domain? Is it good to keep pushing the uh, elements of this suppression by the corporate mansion or the establishment? Uh, or is it a good idea now to talk about what we had in earlier civilizations and what we should be looking back to in order to move forward? Well, excellent question, David. And um, I, I think as, as far as my own role in this is concerned, if I look at my background, my life, my, my career, careers, I think it's, it's a combination of this. One is to certainly get a much better, more accurate historical perspective of what's transpired in previous civilizations, because that insight will add a lot to our understanding of, of what we should be doing now. That's certainly important, but it's, I think, equally important to be able to communicate with many people out there, as many as possible, that this alternative agenda is possible, and it is not the, the agenda that's being supported by the powers that be, that we need to just clearly recognize that a new agenda can be created which is based on, on uh, for lack of a better word, uh, ethical considerations, ones that can truly serve humanity and uh, nature a lot better than what we now have. That awareness seems to be missing among almost everybody on the planet. In that, is there an importance to focus on the agenda that we see today that has clearly been around for hundreds of years. It was around a hundred years ago with scientists then like Tesla as much as, as it is today. That information though that we provide, do you think that it is better to inform the information that comes out of the ancient civilizations rather than the suppression that we've all being conditioned with over the last 
two or three hundred years in this industrial revolution if you look back three or four thousand years there is much to talk to in regards to atlantis uh, the anunnaki um, that whole civilization process those values that they had then that were handed down and in that you can either talk about the <laughs> the dark cabal or you can talk about the realities that we see today which way would do you think would be more impactful on the the general public in this regard? Well, that's a good question, David, and uh, we're we're definitely on the same team here, and we're trying to create a new paradigm. And uh, there there are, I think many many ways of approaching that question. Uh, what I'm choosing to do in in my most recent work and in the recent book is to just look at the contemporary situation for what it is and simply point out that logically it would seem to make sense for humanity to uh, entertain new possibilities in energy, clean energy generation. I've been kind of focused very specifically on that question over the past few years. However, you're certainly correct. Insights can be obtained from historical information such as you're suggesting and that, uh, indeed, a very dark force has been present on our planet for a very long time. And there is also the, the potential for, for very light forces to also occur. I, I often reflect that, that we're living in, in just an extraordinary time. Actually, all of human history has been in that way, that there is uh, probably visitations by other beings. Certainly, the evidence for that is overwhelming and that uh, there, there's an agenda that has been unfolding that feeds the, the negative powers that now we see so blatantly exhibited in the form of wars, international wars, and environmental destruction, uh, which goes way beyond the pale, goes way beyond any kind of reasonable or rational process that could create, for example, clean energy, that uh, whose research and development would require like something on the order of maybe one or two hundred million dollars, which is like one day of fighting in Afghanistan or Iraq. It's it's just a pittance compared to where we've poured our efforts. When we talk about that suppression, Brian, I understand where you are at with that. And I, quoting from your book, you you talk about this energy that we so badly need for the planet and the statement you make the global controllers suppression of making available any practical device has been 100% airtight in spite of numerous attempts to break through and and this is a question I would love to ask is that terminology that you use global controllers when I read it it was not necessarily the corporate mansion that we have today uh, if you're in the conspiracy theory area, they'll talk about the Rothschilds and the Hanovers and the the Illuminati. But this global controllers to me is more important about talking to the the more darker forces. Further to that, it seems to me where there's dark, there is always light. And I would imagine that we are coming up to this point. You you can see a whole host of scientists out there. Uh, you know, the John Anthony West, uh, who clearly blatant about their criticism of this suppression, that it, it is beginning to dawn this new era that will come from many who are fully conscious of it. 
Yes, uh, I think that's happening, and we all have a piece of expressing that, communicating that, or researching that, that it's so obvious now, it's so blatant, that the current uh, practice of science uh, has been without a conscience. It's a very dangerous thing, therefore. Uh, most scientists, people that call themselves scientists, uh, are beholden to the money that comes from grants, and their prestige is directly related with their working on the wrong things. And it's so obvious to me, having been in the inside and now the outside of this uh, system, in which uh, loyalty is demanded, there's even an element of mind control, I think, where people that are otherwise very intelligent within their own fields, scientists particularly, You'd think that they would get it, or that they would courageously stand up, uh, but they don't, with rare exceptions. And that's mainly because they're loyal to a system that has become so powerful, and you don't even need to get into a conspiracy theory to say that, although conspiracy theories are also very important. One of the chapters of my book says, not all conspiracy theorists are paranoid, some are truth-seekers. So you have to look at the big picture, yes. Uh, you have to look at the historical context, look at the science itself, and uh, how is our current science falling down and being able to explain and research things properly. And fortunately, I would say that the really good news about all of this is more and more people, as you say, are are becoming aware of this, are beginning to connect the dots and to see the bigger picture for what it is. It's a, such a, uh, I, I mean, if, if one were to script this, it, it would be just beyond my wildest imagination to be able to create a story that's so impactful as the one that we're now living. Again, a, a quote that you have in your book, and this is a segue to another conversation, uh, you talk about uh, George Monbiot, who said the first way to keep from environmental and climate disaster would be to keep carbon and uranium in the ground. This is the essential problem, is it not? And obviously, we have the concern of oil as well. But in my process, in, in, in what I do in bridging these arguments and bringing people together, it seems that there is more focus now required on nature and the planet itself at the moment and less focus needed on humanity unlike civilizations whether you're talking the mayan or the greek or the roman or, or even empires in recent centuries i think that this evolution is about the implosion of mother earth it is not about implosion of civilizations and it's interesting to me, Brian, because if you do read Dogen theory, for example, they talk about the Syrian uh, civilizations, but they, they talk most importantly about this higher power that is teaching humanity about civilization, teaching humanity about benefiting nature and the earth. Is this possibly another way to take this where we stop the anthropological arguments and the humanitarian arguments for now and and just simply focus people on the earth the soil the planet 
stopping this carbon, uh, stopping this fossil fuel. Is that another way to take this as well in your mind? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, and, and this is my own evolution is is all about that too. Is that uh, I didn't connect uh, enough dots until we got into the 1990s, and unfortunately, I've been away from the mainstream culture now for 30 plus years. So it, it it took me a while to connect these dots. But my main interest now is the Earth and healing the Earth, and doing it responsibly uh, while we still have a chance. I, I believe we can do it. I, I kind of do the science piece on that. I, I, I point out that there exist concepts such as free energy that can revolutionize the way in which we use energy so that the oil, the coal, the natural gas, the minerals, they can just stay in the ground. The indigenous people can be left alone and we can create a, a whole new uh, system uh, political, economic, whatever you want to call it, a whole new system which relies uh, on clean technologies. And so that's my piece. But if you look historically, yeah, absolutely. I, in my most recent essay, which is posted on my website, in which I talk about the technology solution revolution, and this was a presentation I, I made by video at the UN on October the 10th uh, uh, of this year, 10-10-10, I said that we're in a situation now where we just have to embrace these possibilities. We don't have the luxury of continuing to drill for oil and to uh, wring every last drop out. And it's such a different paradigm from the paradigm that, that now exists. And it's similar, more similar to previous paradigms, as, as you point out, where such as some of the indigenous cultures. That's why I think it's so important to uh, to receive their wisdom and their knowledge about nature and that we should imitate nature in whatever technologies we develop. In my speech, I referred to the book Ishmael by David Quinn, in which he argues that since the time of the agricultural revolution in Mesopotamia about 10,000 years ago, humans have organized themselves into cultures that basically tend to be aggressive. They tend to want to take over more land because of the mandate to grow food and to do it in a way that's it's more massive, more organized. And ever since then, uh, and then with the Industrial Revolution, starting 200 years ago or so, it, it's been like we, we, we've been on steroids as a runaway civilization that is working against the, the needs of nature rather than with the, the needs of nature. And so our species has become a cancer upon the planet. And of course, as you say, there are higher powers that are guiding this trauma that are helping to teach us to get along with nature better or not better, depending on, on which camp you're in. But the duality, the bifurcation uh, of the culture that we see is absolutely vivid, as vivid as you can get once we remove ourselves from the distractions uh, of the culture such as it is. This is an interesting area to discuss, I think, because we are essentially talking about a new form of governance. We realize at this stage that the political system, the financial systems no longer have merit. They are certainly reaching a point of exhaustion. And I'm interested to see 
where the basis of that governance is. It's certainly not in those areas anymore. Would you agree with me, Brian, that that governance now that needs to come out is going to be a governance that is provided by a higher power in partnership with indigenous people, clearly without help, certainly not any sort of monetary support, I don't believe, at this stage, because as soon as monetary support comes in, you go, you return back to the, the same old compromises, uh, that darkness. But that governance, I'm sure, begins now with the indigenous people. And when I talk about indigenous people, I'm not necessarily talking about people in the Amazon or Ecuador or even Haiti. Indigenous people can come from the megacities that I talk to. It's a, a special type of people who understand the importance of going back to the soil. Would you agree with that, that idea of this new governance? Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And here in Ecuador, there's a great deal of effort afoot to make that happen. One of the unique features of the new constitution that was passed about two years ago here in Ecuador was that Ecuador is a plurinational state, which means that the indigenous nations have every bit as much rights and uh, power and participation as the uh, the government government, the, the actual uh, government in Quito here, and that right that nature uh, has equal rights, that uh, is also in the Constitution. And it's a wonderful document, it's unprecedented, it's one that I'm trying to hitch my star to as much as possible to uh, convince the government that the Constitution now needs to be enforced, that we have this precious, incredibly biodiverse environments with voluntarily isolated indigenous people that are being threatened at a very at an unprecedented rate. So we're, we're dealing with this as sort of like an emergency situation, but one where more and more people are getting educated here. They're not as distracted as people, let's say, in the, in the Western world, uh, North America or Europe, uh, or Japan or China. It's, it's an effort that I think is well worth participating in right here, and that's one of the reasons, uh, in retrospect now, that we live here in Ecuador. Uh, for example, there's been some suggestions that some of the indigenous communities, uh, having uh, at least created on paper independent states uh, where the oil companies shouldn't come and the oil should be kept in the ground, that these could also be used as places to create innovation sanctuaries where there are teams of indigenous people teaching their wisdom, as well as some Westerners who are also at the cutting edge of technology, clean technology, that could create a whole new set of governance, which is, as you suggest, much more important than, well, uh, what kind of system are we going to have? When can I have my free energy device? Can I go down to Kmart and get mine? Which system is going to be the best? Is it zero point or is it the water molecule manipulation? And my answer to that is, well, it could be any one or some of those, but it needs to be responsibly implemented in teamwork with the indigenous. Absolutely. I think that's terribly interesting, and I love this conversation because we are talking about valid solutions. The indigenous people 
and I've talked to you about Haiti with the tour that is about to come up in January. To a great extent, they are not armed. They do not have a voice, but they certainly have a model. And when I talk to them, they are at last saying, we are living in a torn country that is complicated and compromised by the corruptness of the administration there interaction between the corporate giants in in developed countries like the united states but if you look at these indigenous people and i i talked to their leaders prior to going down there they do have the right idea brian they are finally saying we don't want money we simply want people from developed nations to come here with their gifts that they can offer us and in return we can offer them our gifts our understanding of mother earth and i see this as being such an, a, an enormous step forward in steering away from this monetary power because as soon as you take that obstacle away you are going to eradicate this suppression that we've had for so many centuries and probably thousands of years but the other interesting thing contextually brian is looking back at civilizations uh, the Egyptians, uh, the Mayans, uh, and the Dokans, which I'm working on now, you see the indigenous people writing constantly um, in all of their documentation or their symbolism about water being very important in the earth as being a, a valid ingredient in finding the, the purpose back in the soil with people. It, that comes up again and again and again. And when you talk about Zero Point, I, I respect in your notes that you do say that uh, although that's a, a single word or a terminology, you, you're not just appointing that to one thing, whether it's cold fusion or, or nuclear technology. It can be a number of things. But uh, would you agree with me that with all those aforementioned points that I've provided, also with the fact that water is extremely important and that these indigenous people really have the answer if we simply provide them with our gifts from our backgrounds. Absolutely. That's a, uh, that, that, I mean, you make two very important points. One is the fact that the indigenous are offering this, I think, very generous uh, uh, form of collaboration and the second is the crucial importance of water, because w once we get over this energy crunch that everybody's feeling, that's certainly the, the topical issue now. Water is quickly on its heels, both in a positive and negative way, and uh, there's some cutting-edge research being done on water. Uh, actually, that goes back quite far, too. There's a, the indigenous view, which is terribly important. And then also the more Western view where, for example, Victor Schauberger, the uh, Austrian uh, forest warden, discovered that if water were allowed to flow naturally in streams, that it can be restructured and purified, which has now been scientifically proven time and time again by a number of people, including uh, Dr. William Tiller, Bill Tiller, and others that, that show, yes, beyond any reasonable doubt, we can purify water through our intention. Uh, if it's a positive intention, the water becomes pure. We can heal ourselves. We can heal our environment. 
through some of these approaches, which it would be a wonderful collaboration between the indigenous and the, uh, the best of the Western mind, that this kind of collaboration would be the, the way to go. It's, it's really the only way to go. There, there is some really interesting work also being done by people like uh, Gunter Pauli, who wrote a book called The Blue Economy, which even though it's basically a very Western uh, viewpoint, he has identified many, many technologies and approaches to, for example, restoring the rainforest, where everything can be back into balance again after 20 years of, of very uh, wise replanting in consultation with the indigenous and soil preservation and so forth, and where, where water suddenly or almost suddenly becomes purified. When you look at, at something like the Chevron Texaco oil dump in uh, the Ecuadorian Amazon, as well as, of course, the BP oil spill in the Gulf, they're examples of how water can be uh, terribly abused and, and be made uh, to, to be diseased. That's the negative side. The positive side is that water can be purified, and in fact, it is the bridge. I believe it is the bridge of consciousness between the human and the natural environment. I would so agree with that. If you look back to the ancient civilizations, you can look back at any account of the Big Bang and that whole process. But water is always involved. Whether you're talking about uh, Atlantis with the first firmament, uh, and then you're, you're talking about the second and firmament, uh, as in uh, Genesis. It seems to me that what we're missing here is that we are being given over the course of our civilization multiple opportunities to realize the importance of water. We waste it and we pollute it and yet there is a higher power here who is here to help who is saying look we're still going to provide it to you you're still going to have water and this is going to be the real key to life. As you say, if the indigenous population realize this, and this becomes one of the key factors in talking to the conventional scientific community, then perhaps uh, this partnership can become qualified and real at last. I think so. I, I think that, you know, certainly we're working the problem here in Ecuador, and we have uh, many allies in the effort, uh, whether it's the Pachamama Alliance or certain people that are that have relationships uh, both with the indigenous people. Uh, for example, I was involved recently in a film called Yasuni, which is all about the initiative to keep the oil in the ground in what is probably one of, one of the most precious spots on Earth. It's it's the most biodiverse in terms of species of mammals and plants and birds and amphibians it's about to be uh, uh, virtually destroyed by oil drilling and deforestation well the initiative is basically that the government is willing to match funds with the international community to keep the oil in the ground well i know that's an economic solution it's short term but it's it's an effort at least to maybe shift the energy here a little bit and to also see that we have real-life avatars going on right here, right now, in what is the largest, most precious rainforest left on Earth, the Amazon, and which would be destroyed, virtually destroyed, by multinational interests 
in the next 30 years if we don't do something about this. And the indigenous people are, are very aware of this. So are some of the rest of us. And so we're, we're wanting to create bridges to be able to also get some support for some of the research required to really make innovative systems such as water purification, restructuring, the ability to heal through medicinal plants, to have local ecosystems that are completely self-sufficient in waste management, water, and energy, which is another innovation that we're working on here in Ecuador, which uh, I think could go a long way in solving our problems. And certainly the indigenous lands, indigenous community, would would be more than happy to cooperate with us on that. I'm absolutely convinced of that. As we close to the end of this, towards the end of this second program, I, I've been reading George Orwell all my life. Uh, you quote him in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. There is a great need today, I think, as we really push forward this message to the establishment that all of these need to be looked at immediately and not next year or not in five years time in that they are obviously going to have to back down from the huge corruption that we see the thing that always strikes me is certainly in my road of attaining the highest integrity uh, you are constantly pulled by this world you do reach a point where that integrity cannot be pierced in any way, shape, or form, and truth is truth. And it seems to me, Brian, that in your area, and of course in places like Haiti, where I will be going shortly, that if we can infuse these ideas into their minds, help them with it, with our gifts, offer them a voice in order to offer us a voice on their behalf, we may be able to, in very short spaces of time here, actually achieve what we're talking about. Would you concur with that? Well, absolutely, and it, it's good that that a movie like Avatar came out in order to, once again, shake a, a little bit of reality and truth into the mainstream. And meanwhile, it, it seems like my quest at the moment, besides working just like yourself with some of the uh, indigenous people here in Ecuador and to put pressure on the government to listen to them and to come up with various collaborations, that in addition to that, we need to also be able to do the, the protected research and development of some of these new concepts free uh, of the pressures that come from the mainstream and to be able to assert that, to say, well, this is what we plan to do and no more suppression please that's certainly one of my bottom line messages is that we're we're going to create a whole new system of governance and understanding economics and all of those other things that are now collapsing and we're going to do it this way now if that's not sufficiently public well so be it we'll we'll do it anyway it's time for truth telling and it's time also to realize that it's our social systems that have become so corrupted. It's, it's not the technologies, it's how they've been used and abused. And obviously, when people are starting to talk about 
things like geoengineering to solve our climate change problems by uh, spewing particles into the atmosphere or uh, chemtrails or whatever you want to call them. Uh, this is a very gross approach to our problems. It reflects a, a philosophy that's so totally different from what we need to do that this has to be pointed out. And I certainly spend my whole life expressing the contrast between what is and what could be. And what could be is very exciting, very positive. We need to get wise people together and to insist that whatever emerges, whatever technologies are used, are not abused. It's up for grabs now. I think that I would be bold enough to say at this stage, Brian, and that's what we shall do when we talk about the wonderful Klaus Heinemanns and Bill Tillers and Nassim Haramains from Hawaii, uh, all these wonderful people to bring them together, to bridge them together in finding this solution. Yes, and, and that's what we're doing right here at Mona Sueños, um, which is our retreat center and conference center here in Ecuador, is we're bringing in some of the, the best and brightest cutting-edge innovators. We had a meeting of a group that we recently formed called the Global Innovation Alliance, which is a group that will be supporting inventors to, and researchers and promoting innovation. So that's going on, but we're also working with some of the indigenous people and some of the uh, non-governmental organizations that that encourage it, such as the Pachamama Alliance, which is here in Ecuador and in the States, where we're, we're working with the indigenous people to come up with solutions. And that's uh, the, our main purpose here, really, at Motosuenos, is to be a gathering place for kindred spirits to come up with alternative solutions. And that provides the entrance into our third program in the series this has been a very productive conversation i've enjoyed it so very much and look forward to all these areas with you brian in the future thank you so much today well thank you david the feeling is mutual and to our listeners today i do hope that you have enjoyed this second in uh, the three program series with brian o'leary you can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com.